0: Woman on, on. All dressed up to do you, and I'm here to watch you do.
1: Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Libya Snedden.
2: And I'm Rob Olson. We are bringing you this episode, part two of our booked live uh inaugural reading event with uh our readers tonight being kevin helmick and chris deal
1: yep so kevin helmick um brings us a completely original work um here it is part of a work in progress called the rain king and this is uh basically the first chapter of it which uh which sounded pretty cool it's been uh it's been a long time since we've heard uh, Kevin read on this show. Is it a year and a half now, Rob? That's not about right?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, February of last year, so yeah, a year and a half or so. He's got such a good reading presence. He's just so even, and mm-hmm. yeah, he's got a really good reading presence. That's a seasoned pro right there, buddy.
1: Yeah, unlike some of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess he must be used to working without a net, unlike, unlike ourselves. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, and then uh, the next one we have would be Chris Deal with his
1: story Morrow. Yeah, um, it's another one of those really heartwarming stories involving a couple of youngsters on their road to you know through through life, and uh, yeah, you'll see what we mean. <laughs> it's a re- it's a real cheery crowd that we that we draw here and booked. So yeah, um, this is Chris's first reading. It's the first time he did that. Yeah, this is inaugural reading too. I wasn't aware of
2: that, like, I just assumed, um, I just assumed that, yeah, just like anybody we've known, like, he's at least done, had a couple under his belt.
1: No, and he did such a great job with this one, so, uh, uh again, um, I guess uh, we should probably shut up and just, uh, let, uh, me and you do our thing. That's right. So, uh, here's Livius and Rob from Booked Live. I think we're gonna get rolling again. Get her- Hopefully everybody had an opportunity to grab
2: drinks and stuff like that. Um, we do have books by the authors going to be available for sale after we're all done. Um, yeah, so welcome back. we got a few more authors still going. And yeah, I completely forgot what I was going to say, so I'm just going to let Brighton take back over and introduce some more authors. You ready? Yeah.
3: Thank you everybody, thanks again for joining us for the second half of Happy Happy Storytime. Uh, I want to thank um, Rob and Livius again uh, for putting on this great event. I hope everyone is having a good time. Woo! And I'd like to thank our first two authors, uh, Richard Thomas and Joshua and they each great stories, guys. Oh, Alright. So um, our next author, Kevin. You all know Kevin. All well, met Kevin. Um, actually, I met Kevin about three hours ago, uh, and and so far Kevin has tried to panhandle two dollars from me, accused me of stealing his wallet, <laughs> and uh, probably something else that I can't remember. So it's going great. Our friendship is off to a good start. So uh, Kevin Helmick is the author of the Lost Creek Journal, uh, Clovis Point. Sebastian Cross, and Driving Alone. Shorter works have appeared in several mags, including Pulp Metal, Spine Tingler, Manarchy, and Kish. His blog's at the Right Room Cafe, and uh, has been, uh, sorry, has been guest blogged and interviewed widely across the web. His Southern Gothic, Gothic novella, Driving Alone, was nominated for Spine Tingler's 2013 Best Novella of the Year. Everyone, ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome Kevin Lynn Helmick.
4: All right, thanks, guys. I got uh, thanks, Rob and Liv, for even allowing me in this group of writers. <laughs> it's, it's really so cool. So I brought five copies of my second novel, Sebastian Cross, which most of which is based here in Chicago, and it's free to buy people to buy a book, podcast, whoever gets to it first if you want it. Mm-hmm. So, this is a little bit different um, than anything I've written before. It's a western that I wrote last year, and I kind of put it on the back burner in simmer, and uh, opened mm-hmm. it back up a few months ago to go back at it, and so I'm just going to, uh, instead of trying to pick out something really cool, I'm just going to give you the first act, scene one. Zelda stood before the sink and watched him through the dirty glass of the kitchen window. Like a creature, void of familiar form, his silhouette, lean and skeletal, as a black flame against the falling sun stretched across the earth, the porch, the house, and finally up to dance in the retina of her tired eye as she furrowed her brow. The worn-down mountains there in the distance lay tired, low, and sleeping in their ancient beds. Drying her hands on a thin cotton apron, she turned away for just a moment to pull a pan of warm biscuits from the oven and place them on the table. She kissed the burn on her bare fingers and looked out the window again. He was gone. She leaned closer to the glass and searched the dead yellowed yard from side to side, but the sun was bright and blinding, and all she saw was white and it lingered in her vision after she turned into darkness inside. She untied her apron, waiting for her eyes to adjust, reached for the glass. And the bottle of bourbon on the table. Poured two fingers. She swallowed it down and poured two more. The sunlight pushed through the windows in dusty yellow shafts, creating bright, elongated panels that lay across the red oak of the living room floor. She walked through them, unaffected, like the keeper of a cathedral. Made her way to the screen door with the bourbon in hand and stood there for a while. He sat on the top step, shoulders wide, his arms knee, arms on his knees, while she watched. His hair poured out from under the wide brim and lay between his shoulder blades. Henry, he didn't answer. She pushed the screen door open, stepped out and stood next to him. She nudged him with with her knee and touched his shoulder with a glass of bourbon. He took it without saying anything and set it on the step next to him. That's about the end of it, Henry, she whispered. He sighed, he hated going into town these days. They both watched yonder as those black hills seduced the Oklahoma sun like they had so many times before, and as they would forever, and their faces turned cool and dark in the shade of the end of the day. She leaned against the porch rail and looked at the side of his weathered face. It'll come, she said, don't worry. I know, and I ain't. He pulled his pipe from his pocket of his trousers and produced a match. He clenched his teeth on the stem and struck the stick across the porch. The flame drew up and he held it out in front of him. Supper's ready when you want something to eat. Henry put the flame to bowl and puffed until it glowed, flipped the match away. He reached for the bourbon, poured it down his throat and looked back out across the corrals where a few head cattle lingered silent and dull. His eyes shifted up to the rise and he just stayed there. His smoke, he smoked, stroked his beard from his chin all the way down to his arm and once again rested on his knee and his wrist fell limp after a long minute she said we'll be all right he hung his head spit and she stopped talking i'm fixing to do something he finally said he spoke in a quiet deep growl and almost startled her when he did what what can you do it'll come when it comes yeah i sure wish i could think that way he looked back out at the now empty sky turning a shade of blue she, lifted, she shifted her hip and looked out and tried to see what he saw and said, Are we talking about the same thing? I kind of doubt it. Well, whatever you're talking about, I hope it's close enough. He took in a deep breath, as if to say something that would take a lot of breath, but just let it out and bit his bottom lip and thought. All right then, she said, turned toward the door and opened it and stopped. Supper's ready when you are. And she went inside. Z knew men, and she knew when it was best to leave this one alone. They had been down a long road together, but she always felt like a lonely traveler. Henry Farrell was never much of a rancher. He knew horses and cattle, but in a different way. He was a soldier once and always, a guerrilla fighter, and that's where his skills were greatest. He had fought for the South, but when the South fell, he had fell with it, far and hard. War as a boy, back as a man and all notions of anything else in this world were weak and dreamlike. He brought the war back with him like a hungry dog with a dry bone. There wasn't much else he knew. There was something wrong with living past your time, he thought. Surviving the war wasn't a good thing. Fighters were supposed to die fighting. Now he toiled. He spent his years watching over a herb yet to yield, a life yet to hold, a price yet to pay. A failure in someone else's reasoning, but he knew the reason why, and it had nothing to do with winning or losing. He knew what was coming to and it wasn't the rain, at least not the kind they needed. He stroked his beard again closed his eyes, and images flashed in his mind of running horses, hoofbeats like the drums of the hell for deliverers of death, swift and sure and with extreme prejudice. Gunpowder flashes and smoke-filled forests, hot summers and hard winters were as much as an enemy as any other... The deafening sounds of dual pistols firing over and over until the barrels were nearly red hot and tempered. Scenes drenched with torn flesh, dust, blood and fire. He took a deep breath through his nose and the putrid smells of death filled his senses. His heart beat slow and remained calm in his chest. He rubbed the nub of his missing finger. Phantom pains. He opened his eyes and scanned the darkening sky, so dark now that only the horizon line was where the blanket of stars stopped and draped behind the range. If he had fallen asleep and woke in another world, it would have been fine, but he hadn't. He struck another match and lit his pipe again. Pulling himself up from the step, he walked across the porch, catching the screen door behind him and letting it close without a sound. She had turned the lamp up and the fire too and had taken a seat in an ornamental rocking chair in the corner and pretended to read. She watched over him she watched over she watched him over the top of the King James Bible she had owned since a child. He walked to the kitchen and sat, shuffled his feet and looked at the steak, gravy, and biscuits without hunger, getting cold. He set his pipe on the table, pulled his pocket watch and checked the time. It was too early for bed, but he was tired anyway. He sat for a while and thought Days of quick decisions were far behind him, and time seemed to stand still. When they moved west from Missouri, they had come in good standing. They had money then, for Henry and a few others from the war had banded together and taken to outlawing. They would apply their profession to a more reliable cause. Soldiers still, but soldiers of fortune. And they had the finest clothes and mingled with the upper class. He presented himself as a horse trader, a cattle baron, a real estate investor, and some considered him only as an anonymous man of importance. He was good at it, and there was no fight to it. The capital he used and where it came from was well-known, but no one questioned. He was well-liked and well-feared. Not till he turned to an honest trade did the money dry up, and the fight came to him, and it was a fight he couldn't win, a fight without purpose, beginning or end, a fight with nature and all her deceptions, a fight with God and all his. It had been 10 years since he had bought the ranch and it felt like he had bought his own prison. Fidgeting and restless, he watched her there in the corner behind her leather-bound storybook. Her chair squeaked from drought and she rocked. He silently cursed and wondered why she bothered with that old tired thing. His deep eye socket's too dark for her to see, but she could feel his gaze and she placed a toe out, stopped rocking, stopped squeaking, turned a page and pretended it was all right. Z was a good woman and stood by him always. He stood up, slid off his coat and hat, walked over and hung them on a peg by the door. He stood for a minute, brushing the sleeves while she watched. He walked across the floor to the stairs and began to ascend as she closed the book and set it on the table. His back soon disappeared into the dark along with the sounds of his bootsteps, a door closed. She looked out the window at the blackness. There, shook her head, rubbed her calloused hands together, and began a silent prayer that was familiar, memorized, and saved for just occasions like this, just for Henry. But somewhere in the back of her mind, she always suspected it was wasted, for without faith, prayer is just begging. In the dark of the, in the dark on the edge of the bed, Henry sat for a long time before he pulled his boots and lay down. He folded his hands behind his head, was in a light sleep before she came. She undressed, watched him breathe silent and shallow before she turned the lamp down, fluffed her pillow, and worried what to say, what to do. She woke him in the night carefully without words and like two blind strangers finding one another in a vast, empty world, they made love quiet and slow. Dreams filled his sleep and he laid still and watched. One part of his mind tried to wake him, but another tried to unravel tried to stay there and see what would happen. He furrowed his brow as his eyes moved about under their lids and took dictation of all that was going on. He often dreamt in a certain way as a curious spectator, hiding or removed, but this was different. He was keenly aware that he was the one being watched and found and the dream was coming toward him. It was not yet dawn when he woke alone, put his hand in soft cotton sheets where she had laid still warm. He swung his feet to the floor and sat rubbing his eyes. He stood dressed and lumbered to the closet, pulled on his riding boots. He slipped out of the bedroom and walked down the hall with a lantern in hand and stood before a mirror at the top of the stairs. He looked at his reflection next to the flame on the glass for a while and proceeded downstairs to a pantry off the kitchen. He set the lamp aside next to the wash basin and pulled a pair of scissors from a stone jar. Long and sharp, the flame from the lamp reflected and poured down the edge of the blades and off the tip. He thought he heard her, tilted his head in that direction, just the never-ending wind. He locked his fingers in the shears, opened them wide, and filled them with his beard against the side of his cheek and began to cut. He finished up with a straight razor and felt his neck and chin for stubble mist. He cupped his hands in the cool water of the basin, washed his, washed, combed his hair back with his fingers and reached for a cloth in the darkened shelves behind him and patted his neck and face. When he walked into the kitchen, a fire had been made and a coffee pot warmed on the hearth. He sat in the same chair as before with her hands crossed in her lap and her hair a must from sleep. He dried his hands, now folded the cloth slowly and laid it on the table where the supper the night before it had been cleared as if it was never there. He went to a cabinet and pulled out a small flower sack that held banknotes, silver and gold. She watched as he counted the coins and associated them with the days, weeks, months and put them all back in a sack and closed the cabinet. The sun was beginning to rise and he stood before her while she studied him. His clean shaven face had revealed a man that had not aged a minute in thirty years and the oddity of that made it hard for her to look upon him. He wanted no coffee, but grabbed a cup out of respect and walked over to her and filled it. He sat on the hearth next to her and sipped. When when would you be back, she said. He nodded his head. What about? There ain't nothing to what about, he interrupted. She took a deep breath, pulled her eyes away, and they sat there in silence while they both studied the floor. And finally, he said, had a dream last night. She looked at him and waited. There was a bridge up there and above me off to the side. He paused for a long time and tried to remember. People, hundreds, maybe even thousands, and they were all standing there, screaming, crying, looking down. I could smell grass and hear the river flowing, cattails swaying in the breeze above me and again a blue sky. I just looked at them, those faces. I don't know what to make of it sounds awful like a nightmare she said yeah maybe so henry i read once that a bad dream means something good's coming and a good dream means something bad he took a sip of the coffee it was bitter and strong i heard talk like that too do you believe it he looked at her soft eyes growing old and searching for what they wanted her pink lips still full, but growing little cracks at the corners, yet he could still see the little girl in there. He nodded his head at her and said, I don't believe I do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. a copy of the book podcast, you guys will not be disappointed. There is an amazing, eclectic collection of stories in that book. He's right. If you
3: liked any of the author's works so far this evening, of course, pick up a copy of The Booked, because they're all in there. The Booked Anthology, fantastic stuff. There's actually more than five authors in there. A lot more. How many are there? Twenty-five. Twenty-five! How much is it? Sixteen dollars. dollars! That's less than a dollar per author.
0: <laughs>
3: they're not getting paid. That's what are supposed to say. Um, also, uh, I believe all of the authors um, have additional material that's available for you if you want to purchase. It's uh, There's stuff in the back where talk to them. You've seen them up here except for two, and then you'll see them, and you'll recognize them. You'll know who they are. You can talk to them. You know how that works. Anyway, our next author, Chris Deal, has made a terrible mistake. Uh, he said that I could make up whenever I wanted to about him. <laughs> So, I don't know if you know this, but Chris Deal is a brony. Unless uh, you don't know what a brony is, uh, a brony is someone who's very, very, very into uh, My Little Pony. Magic, or Friendship is Magic, specifically. Uh, I know he's dressed up as Rainbow Dash, personally. I've seen his stuff on Facebook. Uh, no, that's not true. I made that up. Uh, Chris Deal is a North Carolinian. In the Midwest. His debut collection of short fiction, Cien Fuegos, was originally issued by Brown Paper Publishing and was republished by Cuboa, is that correct? Close All enough. All right. I wanna add extra <laughs> K's. Cuboac <laughs> <laughs> right, uh press. It has been uh, it's been in several anthologies, including Warmed and in, or he has been in several anthologies, including Warmed and Bound and You're Dead and I Killed You. Ladies and gentlemen, our next reader. Christy.
0: No comment about the uh, brony thing. Uh, so this story took me a while to figure out what exactly I was going to read tonight. I uh, came with a whole uh, got a bunch of crap here uh, that I was going to choose from. Still don't know if I made the right call. Uh, this is based. Partially, true. who knows if it's true, I don't even know anymore. The story is called uh, Morrow. The two boys were out in the woods that day because their father Boyd was not. Summer was coming closer to the end and the boys were trying to milk as much time as they could away from home, away from their old man. The boys were twins, Boyd, Junior, and Lucas. They were not sure who was the older, and if he even remembered himself, their father never cared to reveal the answer to that secret. Boyd Jr. took an elder's responsibility for Lucas though. He took over. He took. He took after their mother, Moore. And Boyd was never too much keen on that resemblance. When Boyd's truck pulled off of the dirt road earlier than his shift allowed, tossing dust and loose pebbles out behind as it went, they were eating at the kitchen table. Their early morning. Their early morning hours had been spent dragging their father's empty beer bottles, a whole garbage bag's worth. Down a puckets gas to get the deposits back, which bottom each a Coke and a pack of peanut butter crackers, plus a little extra that they split. It'd been the first time that they'd made the trek themselves, but they would generally take the bottles through field and hinterland out to Morrow by it. Morrow lived in a lean to in the woods out by the old Burnett plantation. <laughs> he hauled chairs and chester drawers from where he found them, he held paintings of Jesus into trees, and created an imitation of a home in his corner of the forest. His best find was a small wood-burning stove that he used to cook what little meat he caught, squirrel and rabbit. His days were spent gathering empties and taking them down to Ronnie puck cell for change or going down to the creek to keep away the heat and the dirt. His government checks were delivered to his daughter's home down in Gastonia, but she never delivered the proceeds or took the time for herself. The boys liked to help out more, and more liked to see a pleasant face every now and then. He gladly took the cans and gave the boys a couple of dollars each, all he had in his pockets to give. He was older than their father, older than Ronnie Puckett or Reverend Lawrence, even. Folks around said that he had been in the great war. He had been there when they let the Jews out of the cans, and when he came back, he was never quite the same. Three weeks before, they went out into the woods. The twins had brought them a nice little bottles and he paid them as always. The boys waved and said their goodbyes, starting out of the woods. They followed the road down, spend their coin at Puckets. But more stopped them. This so, is what you boys know, that you can take your bottles down to Puckets from here on out yourselves. I'm gonna be leaving for a while, it might be a spell before I come back. <coughs> the boys nodded and walked out into the full bright of the sun neither really thinking on what he said. As soon as Boyd's truck came to a screeching halt in the driveway, Boyd Jr. And himself went out to the window for a moment. Saw his father's shirt already yellow beneath the arms, around the neck, in the day's damp heat. Swaying with each step, his eyes were still like the pond behind the fish joint. And neither showed what was happening beneath. Knowing what was coming, Boy Junior pushed Lucas out of the back door and they ran until they hit the tree line. Then they ran some more down dead riverbeds and over fell trunks, through tunnels of sweet gum, staghorn, and devil wood, cutting across game trails. Adele watched them pass from under the safety of shade. She no longer heard their hollers or felt the rumble of their steps. She went back to her child, not knowing that in another six months she would be the boy's supper. On the night of the solstice. In the quiet hours of full dark, Boyd would leave, fl- leave Freyers, the local beer joint, which was <coughs> itself just a barn. He would pass the bridge over Long Creek before taking the curb at Corner Presbyterian faster than should be necessary, meeting the deal which he crossed. The body would bounce over the hood and spider web the windshield on impact. No need to waste meat, Boyd'd say. God didn't want us to eat it. He'd have moved her out of the road or he'd just slowed down my truck. Maybe leave the bar earlier or later or anything. Point is we got meat. The boys went meet oh, I'm sorry. The boys went deep past the creek, their flight coming to its conclusion as the boys stumbled out of the brush and into the clearing that surrounded the schoolhouse ruins. Panning and bent crooked, palms on knees, they stayed quiet for a spell, making sure their father was not trouncing on through the woods after him. Little was left after a hundred years of the schoolhouse, but mud brick chimney and two stone walls, floor of eroded planks, no glass remained in the frames. There hadn't been a class taught in those rotting walls in near on a century. All its students all consigned to the dust. At one point, a road had cut through the woods, coming up to from town and coming straight to that door, and nature had taken a claim to it, as it was striving for the building itself. The boy's breath had run away from him and they stopped to catch it. They look angry to you, Lucas said, still hunched over. Boy, junior nodded. His eyes went hard and as he scanned the woods, a hawks screeched and squirrels jumped from tree to tree. Beyond that the forest was static. A thin sliver a thin silver string dipped from the corner of Lucas's lips, the end coming to the rest of, the end coming to a rest on the forest the dirt floor. Think he got sent home again? He wiped away the pinpoints of sweat up from his forehead. Don't know, Boyd Jr. said. Might have been no more work for him today. He went and sat with his back against one of the still upright walls, enjoying the coolness that spread through his skin. The building's remnants groaned at the inconvenience, but they held. I don't want to go back home tonight, Lucas said. You never do, Boyd, replied. Maybe we can catch some fish and eat supper out here tonight. We'll sleep here in the uh, schoolhouse. Boy Junior replied, you know, there ain't no fish in the creek, in that creek. Maybe frogs, snakes, no fish. I can eat no frogs, Lucas said. French do it all the time. I hear they even got a taste for guinea pigs. Lucas sneered, but did not respond. They sat there as the sun inched its way on home, the sky bright blue up above. But a clear darkness was creeping up from the west, Blackbird song slowly rising in desperation. A coyote called out to its kin on the wind that cut through the leaves above. Its still, then they slowly faded to death and rot. Want to go on and see if Maura is back yet, boy? Boy, Junior asked. Lucas nodded, smile spreading across his lips. They stood. They stood and stretched. Made their own, Made their way past the derelict schoolhouse. Through a hill cane and gray dogwood, then deeper, going through shag bark and bluejack, braiding, braiding their way around poison ivy and dodging snake holes. They came out on McCoy Road and cut across through Lawrence's untended field, bearing since the old man couldn't do so much as leave his bed. Stop, the stalks were left to decompose where they stood. They were offerings to of the crows. They followed a trail from the road and around the field, hugging close to a forest, green, a forest of green ash. Moors leaned to that the other in the field, past the monument put up for the men and women who tended to land back what was the plantation. It was four foot high and made of stone with words of apologies fashioned into the surface. The old-timers who spent their days sitting in the shade outside of Puckett's, spinning tobacco juice to join with the dust. They'd weave words out of the wooden grave. They'd wood, Sorry. They would weave words about the wooden grave markers out in the woods. Slave cemeteries entrusted to shadows of trees and the bones that had been dragged up by the ploughs. Shaded specters that held on to the anger of their disrupted rest. Lucas held his breath as they walked on past that monument. Till bright sparks danced before his eyes, trying to trade silence for safe passage. Boy Junior kept his eyes on what passed through the trail, picking out the perfect place to lane the steps, knowing Lucas would follow him perfectly. They cut through the quiet of the tree shelter until the forest opened up at the clearing that was Morrow's home. Boy Junior was glad that his body shielded his brother's line of sight then. Morrow's home was there. It was formed by a sheet of scrap tin at a fat angle against a base of the black oak that kept his bed dry. The stove that took him two days to drag through the forest, the old man not even thinking to move his squat to match the find, was still there in the midst of the detritus collected over an indigent lifetime. Sitting a short distance off in the chair, that always gave a small bit of comfort to the man, sat what remained of moral by it. He had been there in that chair for weeks. Perhaps he had sat down there once the boys left, and he never rose again. Moral had been out in the wild long enough for the muscles to loosen and the skin to weaken, for animals to take bits of him away. There was nothing there above the old man's neck. Looking over the leaves that covered the floor of his makeshift home, they could see no sign of his skull. The boys had liked him, despite the smears of dirt across his face and clothes, the stench that built between his biweekly baths in the creek. He spoke to them modestly and held back nothing of the things that he had seen in the days walking through life. And all he had wanted was for someone there to know that he wouldn't be around much longer. After a moment pregnant with a morning, neither boy had ever had much need to practice, Boy Jr. tugged at Lucas's hand, and they retraced their steps back through the field, across road and creek, through wood, and past their home, where inside their father snored on the kitchen floor. They walked back up to pockets as the light of day finally died, looking for someone to tell the moral was not around anymore.
2: All right, once again, Kevin Helmick and Chris Deal making up the second part of our reading series on the podcast here. I want to point out, if you haven't noticed already from from the four readers, we made sure to ask them to read stories that weren't in the book. Um, you might think, oh, they just want to sell their book and they don't want us to be spoiled.
1: Goddamn damn right. That's oh, wait, part of it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, the other part is... Um, um, this way there's more variety for you you're getting more of an exposure so like these are a good example of of the the author's writing and then you know instead of just getting the same story again when you buy the book which we know you will there's something else for you to enjoy
1: so we did it for you yeah, of these of these first four, I, I think I mean Thomas Deech and Deal are are very indicative of um, what you're going to get from them in the book anthology. Mm-hmm. Helmick went a different way in the story that he wrote Noir City for for our book. Um, is uh, is a little of a departure from him. It's kind of a little different than a lot of the other stuff he does. So yeah. But, um, still just a great representation of what you'll get when you purchase your copy of the booked anthology, available at amazon.com, Barnes and noble, and bookpodcast.com. That's right. Anybody
2: who needs to get an ebook that they can't readily find somewhere, Rob at bookedpodcast.com, we will have it for you immediately. So you give us, you pay Palace eight bucks, you get a book right away.
1: Just like that. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Oh, and let's not forget Skip Papers, Um, uh Brayton Cameron, who uh, broke the news about um, Chris Steele being a brony.
2: Yeah, you know, I was wondering when that was going to go public. <laughs> yeah. He did make the mistake of we were, we were gathering up bios and he just said, make something up. And I was like, oh, you don't know who you're talking to. He, yeah, he
1: told me. <laughs> <Bronco. laughs> I'd have been up there and been like, uh, oh, you know, I've known Chris for a while and. He's written some great stuff, tried to like, you know, rattle off a couple story titles and he's a great guy. And yeah, no, no, not not with not with Brayton. Nope, straight to Brony. Straight to Which,
2: Brony. I'm I'm wondering about him now because he seemed to have some pretty intimate knowledge of how the Brony My Little Pony situation worked.
1: Oh. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm.
2: Maybe uh, you know, maybe he's he was being a little he was outing himself in secret.
1: Certainly possible. You never know. Maybe that'll pop up on a book to news in the near future. (laughs) Nice. All right. Come back in a couple of days. We're going to bring you our fifth and final reader. Um, He went on for much, much longer than anybody else. Much longer than the guidelines we gave him. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, definitely worth a listen. So come back in a couple of days for some David James Keaton, along with more Rob Livius and Skip Papersley. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob
2: Olson. Keep reading.